If you'd like to know more about our ministry here at The Mission, visit us online at www.themissionnorthshore.org. Thanks for listening. God bless. Romans chapter 9, and we will pray. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you would open our hearts, remind us of your faithfulness as we study your word, of how good you have been to us and how good you will be to us, that you have preserved for us through your son, Jesus Christ, all all of eternity for us. And so we ask now that you would come by the power of your spirit, speak to us, encourage us, that we might be faithful because we know without a doubt that you are faithful. We pray these things together now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are um, continuing our study through the book of Romans. And as I mentioned last week, as we left chapter 8 and we head into chapter 9, the subject matter of the book of Romans changes a little bit as the discussion now turns to the nation of Israel. And for the next three chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, they all kind of have the same purpose, which is to explain to the church what God is doing now with the nation of Israel, to explain to the church that God has not abandoned Israel, and to explain to the church, which is predominantly Gentile, the church in Rome that Paul was writing to, and us here on the North Shore today, a predominantly Gentile church, how we should view Israel and the Jewish people. We remind ourselves, as we did early on in the book of Romans, that the letter to the Roman church is kind of this pure theology. And what I mean by that is it's different than the other letters. Paul had not gone to Rome yet at the point that he writes um, the book of Romans. And so he didn't really know personally the people to whom he was writing in the book of Romans like he did in some of the other letters. So like at the church at Corinth or the church of Philippi or the church of Thessalonica, these were churches that Paul planted. He knew these people. Um, In some cases, he stayed and lived among them for a couple of years. And so when he wrote to them, he wrote according to their issues and the things that were going on in their church to address certain things. But Paul, not knowing the particulars of the church at Rome, he writes in a more general sense. And so he's writing kind of the fundamentals of what a Christian needs to know, kind of basic theology, Christian 101. So in the first eight chapters, what we've seen, Paul has written why we need to get saved, how we get saved, how we are to live in light of new life in Christ, and the assurance of salvation that we have based on God's faithfulness. All very fundamental things, right? All things that every Christian needs to know. Now, as we come into chapter 9, Paul continues teaching fundamentals, but he gives us a new fundamental. And he's explaining now how the nation of Israel fits into this whole picture with the church now. And he explains to us things about Israel, past, present, and future. How does Israel now fit that the church exists? And it's a viable question because the Roman church is a predominantly Gentile church. 
plus the fact they're over 2,000 miles away from Israel, so they may not have a strong understanding of the Jewish roots of Christianity. And even if they do have a strong understanding of biblical history and the Jewish roots of Christianity, even if they know these things, they may wonder if God is done with Israel. It may become a question in their heart, and they may begin to reason as they look back on biblical history. They may kind of reason among themselves and and say, "Well, well, God created them as this people for himself. And he loved them immensely. He called them the apple of his eye. He wanted to use the nation of Israel as a light to all the other nations around them. He wanted them to be his people so that they could see what a people of God looked like and lived like and what happened when God blessed them and and then the nations would be drawn to God. He lavished his blessing upon them. He longed to bring them into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. But what does biblical history bear out? They, They largely rebelled against God for most of of biblical history. When when God freed them from slavery in Egypt, what did they do? They constantly complained and grumbled all the way through the desert, right? And when Moses took a little time to go off and meet with God, what did they do? They built golden calf and they began to worship the thing. And then when God tried to bring them into their own land out of fear and lack of faith, they refused to enter. And then when they finally did come into the land, they didn't obey God and cast everybody out of the land. Instead, they allowed many of the people to remain in the land. And over time, what happened? They began to go after the idols of the people of the land. And it kind of started these different cycles, like the cycle in the book of Judges, right? If you read through the book of Judges, what happens? The people begin to go after the idols of the people in the land. The the Israelites go after these idols. And then God brings a judgment upon them, usually in the form of an invading army. And then as the invading army is bearing down and about to capture them, they cry out to God. God delivers them. And they go, oh, thank you, God. And then it wasn't very many years later. And what did they do? They went back to idol worship. And that just happened as a cycle throughout the book of Judges. And, And a similar thing happened large part in the book of Kings. There there were a few good kings, but there were a lot of really bad kings. And some of these kings even led the nation of Israel into idol worship, so much so that God exiled them at different periods. Had the Assyrians come down and capture the northern kingdom of Israel and haul them away. And then later, as Judah went into Um, idol worship. The Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar came and carried them away to Babylon for 70 years and destroyed the temple. And there was a judgment upon them at that time. But then God allowed them to come back after 70 years was up. And they were allowed to rebuild the temple there under Zerubbabel. And and so they had the temple back. And and there was this kind of constant perpetual thing where where Israel would do good for a little bit and, and pursue God, but then they would go after the idol's of the people of the land, and then God would judge them for it, and and this kept happening. And so God would send prophets, right, to show them that they were wayward and tell them what they were supposed to do, and they were supposed to turn back to God. But they killed most of those prophets. And then what did God do? Sent his best, sent his own son, Jesus Christ. And what happened then? 
They crucified him, right? And so now there's this new thing called the church. So you could see how maybe somebody sitting in a church at Rome goes, I wonder if it means then that God is finished with Israel. They've forsaken him all of these years through biblical history. Now they've crucified his son. I wonder if this means then that he's completely done with them. You could see how somebody might draw that conclusion, right? And the point of the next three chapters is to answer that question, no. That God is faithful to his word and therefore he will be faithful to Israel and that he is not done with them. Now, unfortunately, for most of church history and for many within a large portion of our church history, they have ignored Romans 9, 10, and 11 and have developed a very destructive and misguided theology called replacement theology. Replacement theology has permeated church history for centuries and centuries, and it has been incredibly destructive. And it claims just exactly what we were talking about. Replacement theology reclaim, or, or proclaims that God has rejected Israel and cast them away because they rejected the Messiah. He has altogether rejected them and he has now given the blessings and the promises and the covenants that it once belonged to Israel. He's now given them to the church. And replacement theologists say that the church has now replaced Israel in God's plan. There, there's hard to find a more unbiblical teaching than that. That is absolutely unbiblical. You have to completely ignore Romans 9, 10, and 11 to come to that conclusion. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how the Bible-believing Christian should view Israel past, present, and future, because they do have a future with God. We'll talk more about replacement theology in the weeks to come. We'll talk more about how destructive it has been and the damage that it has caused. But we better get down to the text or we won't ever get there. Paul opens up our text here in Romans chapter 9 now by sharing his heart, personally sharing his heart for what he calls his brethren, his kinsmen, because he himself is Jewish. And so we start with Romans chapter 9, verse 1, and it says this, I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies um, with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Now, what Paul is saying first here is so heavy and so unbelievable that he has to call on the Holy Spirit to be his witness that he's telling the truth. Paul's sorrow is so great and his heart is so broken for his Jewish kinsmen that he says he is willing to give up his own salvation if it means the rest of his Jewish brethren might be saved. Guys, that's heavy right there. Paul just said, I'm willing to go to hell 
if you'll save them from going. That's heavy. Of course, it's not possible because there's only one who can sacrifice himself for our sins and for all of us. But it sure does say a lot about Paul's heart for the lost, doesn't it? That he would be willing to say such a thing. And it should, at its very least, challenge us to examine our hearts and our zeal to see people get saved. Let's let's ask the question this way. What am I willing to give up that people might come to Jesus? What, What are you guys willing to give up? Paul says, I'm willing to give my salvation that my kinsmen might come to Christ. And we could ask the question, for the sake of the North Shore and the people around us and the people that are in our sphere of influence and the people that are in your neighborhood and your workplace, what would you be willing to give up to see them come to Christ? Because if we're honest, like myself included, if we're completely honest, many of us can't be inconvenienced in the least to go out and actually share Jesus with the people that we run into every day. Like to, to give an extra five, ten minutes to go and share our testimony with a neighbor. Most of us can't be that inconvenient. To just go to the, the people that are right around us anyway. So I think this is an area where I know I can grow. I think we can grow as a church in our care, in our outreach for this community. And I would say that having done ministry on the North Shore for a lot of years, and some of you guys have done ministry on the North Shore much longer than I have, that the primary means of reaching the people around us in our community are going to be personal and they're going to be relational. More so than just inviting somebody to church or a church function or that type of a a thing, it's going to be us having relational value with the people around us and going to them and being able to tell them what Christ has done for me and what Christ can do for you. Each one of us caring enough to share the gospel with somebody right around us. And that then begs the question, doesn't it? Who is somebody right around me right now? Who's somebody this week that I can go to and in your world you can go to and share your testimony with? Who's somebody that you can go to and share the gospel with? Who is somebody right around you that you can go, hey, can I tell you what God has done for me and what he can do for you? And so church, let's allow what Paul says as a challenge to us. Let Paul's zeal challenge us and inspire us a bit to go to those around us. The next thing that Paul does here in verses 4 and 5 is he lists out eight privileges that were given to the nation of Israel. Look at verses 4 and 5. He says that they are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants, the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises, who are the fathers and who is Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. So what Paul is doing is for a primarily Gentile church in Rome, 
that may or may not have a strong understanding of Christianity's roots in Judaism and the Jewish people being a people of God, if the church in Rome doesn't really fully understand that, what Paul does here is he lays out these eight privileges that show that the Israelites were God's people long before the church ever came into being. The first thing he says is that they have the adoption as sons. Not only did God choose them to be a nation for himself, but he created them to be his own nation. In fact, when God sent Moses to speak to Pharaoh, it says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. The second thing that he points out is the glory. This is speaking of the Shekinah glory, which is that visible manifestation of God's presence that appeared to Israel at different times throughout biblical history. One example of the glory, the Shekinah glory being among the nation of Israel is in Exodus chapter 13, verse 21. Notice what it says. The Lord was going before them, but he was appearing how? in a pillar of a cloud by day to lead them on the way, and a pillar of fire by night to give them light. But the key is that it was God's presence. The Lord was there before them. The second, or sorry, the third thing that he says by way of privilege that Israel had is the covenants. This is a reference to the four unconditional covenants that God gave to Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. Four unconditional covenants that were given to the nation of Israel. The fourth privilege was the giving of the law. They were entrusted with God's word. They were, they were the first of the people that God took and he says, here's my word, take it and write it down. I want you to be the people of my word. The fifth thing it says is that they were given the temple services. This is all of the sacrifices and the priesthood that were to draw people closer to God and to point them to the Messiah because all of those sacrifices and all of those temple services and all all of the priesthood and even all of the furniture in the temple, all of it pointed forward to the Messiah. The sixth thing he says by way of privilege was they were given the promises. This is a reference to the prophets and the hundreds and hundreds of prophecies that were given to Israel. And then he says in the seventh thing, it was the fathers. And this is a reference to this long heritage that God had of calling and using and speaking to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then the, uh, the, the final thing, the eighth thing, is the most important thing, and that is that Christ himself came through the nation of Israel in his incarnation. So when God decided that he was going to leave heaven and come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, in his humanity, he did so in Jewish flesh. Now, the overarching theme of verses 4 and 5 is that God uniquely revealed himself to Israel and that he gave them his word, right? They were given the covenants. They were given the law. They were given the promises, the prophets. Their fathers were spoken to by God. And then 
they were even given the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, because Jesus Christ is the word. You got the covenants, the law, the promises, the father, and the word, Jesus Christ himself. And yet, most of Israel still rejected the Messiah. So the question then that Paul sets out to answer is, does that mean then that the word of God in all of these forms, the covenants, the law, the promise, the prophets, the fathers, and even Jesus, the word himself, does it mean that the word of God has failed because Israel has rejected him? And so Paul now takes the next three chapters to say, no, God's word has not failed nor has God backed out of his covenants, nor has he backed out of his promises to Israel. God is faithful even when humanity is not. And that's going to be the point that he makes now. And a key verse is there in verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For And he, and he points out here something very important. For they are not all Israel who are descendant from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendant. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise who are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time, meaning at this time next year, God was speaking to Abraham about his wife. He says, at this time next year, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now he begins in verse six by saying the word of God has not failed. He's pointing out that the failure here is not on God's part, but the issue is a lack of faith on the part of Israel. One of the ways that we know that this is the the case and the issue and the subject that he's speaking to When he wraps up this chapter at the end of chapter 9, he'll tell us in verses 31 and 32, as he sums everything up, that the problem is that Israel did not pursue God by faith, but as though it were by works. So this is a problem of them pursuing God by works and doing it on their own, as opposed to coming to God based on his word and on faith. And so therefore, he says in verses 6 through 8, that they're not all Israel. They're not all true Israel just because they're descendants of Israel. They're not all children just because they're children of Abraham. And it's not the children of the flesh, meaning it's not the physical descendants who are children of God, but the children of promise, that is the children of faith, who are the true children of God. Paul told us this or something similar to this earlier in the book of Romans. If you remember back to chapter 2, in Romans chapter 2, verse 28, he said this, For you are not a true Jew just because you're born to Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. So the point that Paul is making is that their physical heritage, their natural being descendants of Israel, their Jewish ethnicity is not qualifying them as the people of God. The way to God has always been the same, and that is how? By faith. 
only and always by faith. Even at the very beginning when God was dealing with Abraham, way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, and it says that Abraham was viewed as righteous before God. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, and then Paul quotes it again in Romans chapter 4, verse 9. When it talks about Abraham being made righteous with God, it says that Abraham believed God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. What made him righteous was not some heritage. What made him righteous was believing and having faith in God. And so Paul is pointing out a distinction between physical Israel and spiritual Israel based on those who believe God at his word. And this is the reason that when Jesus encounters Nicodemus, what does he say to him? You must be born again. You may be a descendant of Israel. You you may be ethnically Jewish, but you're not there yet. You Nicodemus, still must be born again. Physical birth, heritage was not enough. He still needed to believe. And we remind ourselves that Jesus was still speaking to Nicodemus when we have these famous words there in John chapter 3 when it says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so, or even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking of the cross, And then what does Jesus tell Nicodemus? He says, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that what? Whoever believes shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is important and it's theologically important because when we get to chapter 11, what Paul is going to point out there and explain to us is that God has always maintained a believing remnant within Israel. There's never been a time where there hasn't been a believing remnant within Israel. That's what Paul is calling the true Israel. That's what he's talking about. Those who are believing God at His word and therefore come to Christ. Then in verses 7 through 9, Paul gives us an example of this. And he uses for this example Ishmael and Isaac, the two sons of Abraham. They're both descendants of Abraham, but only one of them is a product of the promise. Only one of them is a fulfillment of God's word, and only one of them is a product of faith, right? And so if we remind ourselves of the story, God had promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation even though he had no kids. He took him outside one night and told him to look up at the night sky and he says, you're going to have more descendants than you see stars in the sky. And he promised not only that, but your descendant will be a blessing to the entire world. But there was a problem, wasn't there? Abraham was super old. He didn't have any kids. His wife, Sarah, had been barren for her whole life. Now she's quite old and beyond childbearing years. So it causes a dilemma, doesn't it? A crisis of belief for Abraham. What is he going to do now? Is he going to believe God at his word for something that seems absolutely impossible? Or is he going to try and make it happen on his own effort? 
Of course, that's exactly what Abraham did. His initial response was not one of faith. He took things into his own hands. He took his wife Sarah's servant, his handmaiden. Her name was Hagar and had a child with him, and his name was Ishmael. Ishmael is that proverbial work of the flesh, right? Abraham went and made it happen. He said, God, look, you said I was going to be a dad, and look, I'm a dad. And what did God do? He rejected Ishmael as the son of promise. Even though Abraham came to to God and he says, look, God, I've got this son. You said I was going to be a father. I'm a father. I I know maybe it wasn't exactly the way you said it was going to go down. But, you know, Sarah's really old, probably never going to be able to have kids. Found this old gal, Hagar, and, you know, things just happened, you know. And, And then what does he say? Let Ishmael live before you. May he inherit all of the promises and all of the blessings that you had promised that you were going to give to my descendants. Let them go to Ishmael. And what did God say? No, he's not the son of promise. He's not the one that is according to my word. And then in verse 9, Paul quotes what God told Abraham. For this is the word of promise. Not that you would go do your own thing. This is the word of promise. At this time, meaning at this time next year, I will come and Sarah will have a son. And Isaac will be the fulfillment of what God told Abraham. And so God was teaching Abraham to trust God at his word. Even when it doesn't look like it could possibly happen, you still trust God at his word because God is faithful. And here's the overriding point of the whole thing. Even when Abraham was unfaithful and he went and had Ishmael, God was still true to his word and gave, him, and gave Abraham the son of promise. So even when Abraham was unfaithful, God was still faithful to his word. That's what he's trying to show us about Israel. Just as God was faithful to Abraham, God will be faithful to Israel. And so as we open up chapter 9 and we start to talk about how we should view Israel, the first thing God wants us to know is that his word has not failed. He is not done with Israel. Yes, Israel has rejected God's word. Yes, Israel has rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And in chapter 11, Paul is going to walk us through and explain that, yes, Israel has been and is being disciplined for their lack of faith. And many of the Jewish people would be lost because of their rejection of Jesus. And Paul's brokenhearted about that fact, isn't he? He just said he'd give up his salvation for them. And even Jesus himself wept over Jerusalem for that very same reason, because so many of these Israelites were going to be lost. And so, yes, Israel has rejected God. And yes, they have failed. And yes, they have rejected um, Jesus, God's word, and, and the promises throughout the prophets that he would send his Messiah this way, and all of the pictures that pointed to Jesus as the Messiah. Yes, they have rejected them, but no, God has not abandoned Israel. He has not withdrawn his promises from them. He has not backed out of his covenants to them because God will be faithful to his word. You see, one of the reasons that God chose Israel as his people, 
that God chose a nation, period, to be his people is so that he could display his faithfulness to all the world. He takes these people and he says, watch how faithful I am to them. Even when they're unfaithful, I'm going to continue to be faithful to them. They will always be the apple of my eye. I will always love them. They will always have my promises and covenants. And I will, through that, demonstrate my character as faithful to the rest of the world. Now, You may be asking yourself, what in the world does this have to do with me? You may say to yourself, well, I'm a Christian. I've chosen Christ. I'm headed to heaven. I've got Jesus' promises of such. Like, I I, I mean, whatever God's doing with Israel over there, and, you know, I mean, you can't get any further away from here than Israel, right? And, and, And so he's like, whatever's going on over there, I don't know what God's doing with those guys. And how does that have anything to do with me? What has it got to do with me? And let me tell you this, it has everything to do with you. And the reason that it has everything to do with you, because it's a testimony of the faithful character of God. If God has reneged on his promises to Israel, if God has backed out of what he promised them, That makes him a promise-breaking God and not a promise-keeping God. That makes him unreliable, untrustworthy, and unfaithful. God made unconditional promises to Israel. He promised that they would be a people before him forever. He promised that he would never forsake them and never back out of these covenants. And if God has backed out of his promise to Israel, let me ask you this. What assurance do you and I have as Christians that he won't back out of the promises that he's made to us? We have none. We have no confidence. If God is a promise-breaking God, that he won't back out of his promises to us. And God has made us some pretty important promises, has he not? Jesus said in John chapter 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me, what does it say? Has eternal life. That's a promise. They have eternal life. Does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. In the next chapter, Jesus said, Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. That's a promise. He says, they will have eternal life, and I myself will raise them up on the last day. I want God to be faithful to those promises. I bank my whole life on Him being faithful to those promises. And so for the next three chapters, what Paul's going to do is argue that God has been faithful and will be faithful to his word and his promises to Israel, that he's not done with Israel, and that his reliability is based in who he is as the faithful one and not based on their performance. Here's one of the promises that God gave to Israel in the Old Testament, and then we'll wrap things up. This is from Jeremiah chapter 31, 35 through 37. It says this. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar. I think the waves are roaring, right? So this is still applicable. 
who stirs up the sea so that the waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. And here's here's the key. If this fixed order departs from before me, if these things disappear, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will also cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all of the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. So what God says in this passage is, if the sun doesn't come up, if the moon and the stars fail to shine at night, and if there are no more waves in the ocean, and if you guys can figure out how to measure the heavens, has anybody ever figured out how to measure the heavens? Scientists keep building bigger and bigger and bigger telescopes, don't they? What do they find out? It's just further and further and further out there. The only thing a bigger telescope tells them is that they need a bigger telescope, right? We cannot measure the heavens. So as long as the sun comes up, as long as the moon and the stars shine, as long as there's waves in the ocean and we can't measure the heavens, as long as all of those things still happen, we're good. When all of those things fail, then God will reject Israel for what they have done against him, he says. Until then, he will be faithful to his word, even when they're unfaithful. You see, it's not dependent on what they have done. It is dependent on God, who is true to his word. And guys, whether you understand it or not, we live by that truth. We only have the hope of heaven because of that truth. Why? Because we fail all the time, do we not? We blow it every single day. And what a horrible, miserable state it would be if we had to live in constant fear every time that we blew it that God might abandon us. But God has promised, hasn't He? That if we come to Him by faith, if we accept His Son, Jesus Christ, if we surrender our life to Him and follow Him even though we fail, He will still be faithful to us. And that assurance of heaven will always be there. And that's why Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.13 and say, If we are unfaithful, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny who He is. Why is he faithful? Because that's who he is. He is the faithful one. That means that all of the promises that he's made to you and I will come to pass. And I am so, so very glad they will. I don't have to live in fear every day of wondering, am I still saved? Oh man, I thought this bad thought. Oh, oh, I, I blew up and I said this to that guy. Oh man, I... Am I still there? Am I still with God? Has He abandoned me somewhere? No. He is faithful. When you and I blow it, He is still faithful. Let's pray and then let's worship accordingly. Lord, we thank You that that's who You are. We thank You that it's not based on our performance before You. We thank You that every time we blow it, when we blow it so often that our salvation doesn't hang in the balance, that 
that we don't have to fear that you have now left us and abandoned us. We thank you for who you are as faithful. So, Lord, we ask that you take these truths that are so precious to us. The only assurance of hope that we have is the fact that you are faithful, Lord. We, we have no hope in ourselves. And we pray that you would take these truths that are so precious to us and not cause them to well up in our hearts and then be turned back to you in the form of worship. May we now worship you for all that you have done for us, but also all that you hold for us in your faithfulness that awaits us in heaven. May we now worship you accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen.